Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. This is God's Word for you today. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, You've spoken to us in Your Word. We ask that You would speak in the preaching of Your Word. Please account for our frailty. May your spirit be very busy in our hearts. For Christ's sake, amen. It's interesting to see, I guess, as the great commercialization of holidays has continued to progress. Seems like now, I guess, we jump directly from marketing and selling all the Halloween stuffs directly to the Christmas stuffs. It's amazing that if you go to Walmart now, they don't already have it set up for Valentine's Day. It seems ridiculous how early they start on it now. But at least for a season, we get to walk around where so many of the things that we interact with will be shaped by red and green and white and gold and have things like happy holidays or whatever else. But occasionally we get to see that wonderful, happy phrase of Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, that happy tiding, remembering a day in which God stepped inside the created order. No longer laboring solely from the outside in, The God who is other, the God who is outside of time and space, the God who is outside of matter and energy, but stepping inside. And interestingly, not stepping inside the created order as the greatest king that has ever been witnessed. Didn't show up, was one of the you know, Marvel Avengers having superpowers and being able to do all sorts of miraculous and marvelous things out of his own ability. But instead, stepped inside the womb of a very poor, very Jewish young woman. Betrothed to be married, not yet 
married, struggling with poverty and difficulty, the kind of family that would be easily overlooked and forgotten. And the God of grace, second person of the Trinity, begotten before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, stepped inside of humanity without ceasing to be God, put on the fullness of mankind, became truly, really human, fully man. And it's intriguing that even as we have a season in which so much of our culture will mention that Christmas word, mention that great event in human history, God stepping inside time and space. It's so easy for us as Christians, or perhaps even not Christians in the room, to lose a little bit of the significance in the here and now. It's easy for this to be one of those things that kind of exists out in the ether. Like, I I know it happened way back when, and I know that will matter when I die, but somehow between when it happened and when I die, it doesn't have a whole lot of importance for my day to day. The fact that the second person of the Trinity became Jesus in the womb of Mary, how does that impact right now? Well, Titus 11.15, Titus 2 verses 11 through 15, I think provide at least a, a, a cursory explanation of that, how it matters today. Titus, this letter is being written to Titus, one of Paul's uh, understudies. He's been sent to Crete, an island that is um, famous for having lazy people that are uh, actively pursuing their own pleasures. A civilization that's not committed to working hard, maybe the way we would say it today is maybe working smart, uh, but certainly more than anything committed to uh, kind of uh, enabling their vices, their delights, their joys their physical, sensual pleasures. And the gospel of grace has created a foothold on this island where the church, this young church, has begun to grow, uh, planted by Paul at some point on his missionary journeys and now uh, getting a new pastor, Titus. He's being tasked as an evangelist to come in and establish the session to ordain elders, to ordain leaders in the church so that these men would lead and govern and rule under the authority of Christ. He's been walking us through kind of what that means. What do these rulers look like? What do these elders look like in the church? What are our presbyters supposed to be? They're supposed to be good and godly men, those that are defined by uh, the presence of Christ that exudes kind of all of the different areas of their existence so that holiness percolates from their hands and from their hearts and from their mouths and from their minds so that they have the the strong aroma of Christ. These are held in contrast to false teachers, those that are constantly kind of pursuing their own desires, their own delights, their own benefits, their own blessings, their own pleasures constantly. 
And it's intriguing because you don't tend to think of the Bible being about this, but so much of this letter is about the ordering of our pleasures. Are our pleasures defined in Christ? Shaped by Christ, trained by Christ, obedient under Christ to His Word? Or are they unchecked, ungoverned, unrestrained pleasures that pull us this way and that way, leading us into who knows what places So much of the book so far has been largely about application, the kind of people that you need to be, the kind of people that you need to avoid, and the certain behaviors that we need to be. In fact, actually, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it walks us through the different categories of people and what you're supposed to be like. Older women, old ladies, this is what you're supposed to be like. Can't be a drunk gossip, not allowed. Young ladies, faithful Laboring to be self-controlled and pure. Young men, self-controlled. Working through all these categories. Old men, old women, young women, young men. Even, verse 9, bond servants, those slaves. Being submissive in a way that honors Christ so that every area of our lives are brought into submission to the Lord Jesus The challenge, though, with any sort of commands is that just because we say them doesn't mean that we want to obey them or even doesn't mean we have the ability to obey them. Parents and grandparents have watched this happen for generation after generation after generation after generation. Just because we tell children not to do a thing doesn't mean they won't do it. In fact, actually, sometimes, ironically, you tell them not to do it. They immediately do the exact opposite. Don't touch that. We do the exact opposite, right? It's, it, just because we have a command doesn't mean we have the ability to fulfill it necessarily. Well, verses 11 through 15, again, kind of put this into practice with not just the what, but the how and the why. Not just the, you're supposed to live a godly life, but the how and the why. And interestingly, it starts in verse 11 with Christmas. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace has entered into time and space. It's not something that's, again, promised with nothing backing it up. It's not all words with no action. His grace has entered into the created order. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's not putting his his money there. He's, He's putting his child there, his son, the only begotten Son of God, begotten before all worlds. But God has has entered into this time and space. He's entered into our history, really and truly. And this is one of the challenges uh, 
postmodern folks like us sometimes struggle with is to remember that like history prior to 1955 actually happened. I mean, so many of us, we, we don't think, and particularly the younger people in the room, it's like we think that real life kind of started at like 1988 or something, I don't know. And to, like, no, this is real history, this is real true, it's actually happened, it actually took place in real time and real space. That God... The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit arranged for the salvation of His people, and in doing so, the Father sent the Son into time and space, even into the womb of a virgin. That's the starting point for all transformation. Interestingly, it's not, you need to work harder. That's not the starting point. It's not, you need to be better. That's not the starting point. It's not, hey, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's not the starting point. The starting point for transformation, for a life that's made new, the starting point for a life that is transformed and changed, the starting point for a life that is different than it used to be, is the grace of God in the lives of men and women, boys and girls. Now, this grace has appeared in real time and in real space to do a very specific thing. It's not just to prolong our lives and not, you know, incinerate us all and kill us all on the spot, though he is faithful at such a task. What's being referred to here is this specific redemptive act of God, that when Christ Jesus steps inside time and space... His mission is to save a people for himself, ultimately for the Father. Those that are given to him before time itself was created. Verse 14 is going to even label them a people for his own possession, his his own belongings. There's a sense in which we could say he's going shopping for his people But rather than put it on a credit card or pay with cash, he's paying with his own blood. Purchasing them, saving them, changing them, making them new. Taking out that old dead heart, placing in a new living heart, taking away the the grip and control of the old nature, instead giving a new nature still struggles with some of the lingering corruption of the last, but a completely made new person. And this completely made new person, this changed person, transformed person, this saved person, is no longer under the bondage of their sin, is no longer under the judgment of God, is no longer under the wrath of God, is no longer defined by their failings, no longer defined by the evil in which they have committed or will commit, no longer defined by disobedience. These now are called his children, the holy ones of God. So Jesus steps inside time and space to change people. But to change them into what? Well, this is where you get to see there's three things. 
that follow this kind of intrusion into the created order by Christ Jesus. Three things that follow, two in verse 12, one in verse 13. First intrusion into the created order is that he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So it's interesting that as Jesus steps into the side of the created order, he redeems for himself a people. He makes his people new. One of the elements that he makes new, one of the, the, the pieces of this transformation is a training away from things, a, a turning away from what we were unto something different. Now, he even gives us two specific targets that we're turned away from. We are turned away from ungodliness, and we are turned away from worldly passions. Now, remember, this is a big deal for Crete, where this is taking place, the the place where Titus is going to minister. You have on this island a, a culture that is very busy with their bellies, They're constantly uh, uh, trying to feed their pleasures to to satisfy their sensual longings. All about an experience to make them feel good. And interestingly, what's happening is the church is, is being presented as something completely different. These are people that are no longer governed by their physical appetites. They're no longer governed by their sexual appetites. They're no longer governed by their intellectual appetites. They're no longer governed by their entertainment appetites. They're no longer governed by their financial appetites. They're they're no longer actually governed by their appetites at all. You see, ungodliness and worldly passions are used kind of in tandem, but they're not identical. We tend to most often think of the ungodliness part of the redemptive act of God, that that Jesus comes in and he turns our hearts away from evil things. But there's actually, interestingly here, an element where he turns our hearts away from even the good things here to order them correctly and differently. Friends, in fact, I would even go so far as to say in, in our great culture in which we live, there are many things in which, or many situations in which we have good things that have been kind of misordered and placed at too high a tier in our lives so that they've become uh, evil or destructive to us. I'll give you an example. One of the ones mentioned already, food. Food is good. How do I know food is good? God made it. He designed it. In fact, actually, he made it so that my taste buds can taste it and that my taste buds taste it and find joy in that. God designed that. That's his gift to humanity. Some of us got to put those taste buds to to great use this week, didn't we? Some of those meals, absolutely fantastic. And we should be able to enjoy them as Christians. But the freedom that we have in Christ is that we're turned away from being governed by them. That we can enjoy a Thanksgiving meal with our families, and many of us did, but that it doesn't rule our lives. It's not in, it's not in charge of us. You're not the boss of me. Our food doesn't govern us in such a way. 
One of the ones that's going to mark the church as different, and I suspect going to get us a little bit of hot water over the next, I'm guessing, 10 years, 15 uh, specifically, will be our sexual appetites as Christians. That we are defining them very specifically as Christians to say that, no, you cannot just pursue your appetites in any way that you want. No, you, you can't do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. No, we have very specific design that God himself has made. One man, one woman in marriage for life. You don't get to be kind of led around like a bull by the you know, ring in their nose, being pulled around and governed by our, our pleasures, our desires. Good things, wrongly ordered. A love of our jobs. Work is a good thing. It was made before the fall. Sometimes that's become a priority as such that it defines us. We find our, our meaning, our value in it. It governs our time, our energies. Family. I think this is one of the great struggles for young women particularly and young married women is that they, it's so easy to define themselves as mom because every moment of their life, awake or asleep, they're having to function as mom. Instead of defining themselves as I belong to Christ Jesus and he's placed me as a mom for a time. Don't know how long that time will be. But the interesting thing, I think actually in this, in the grammar of this, is that we often think of this transformation as kind of being an instantaneous thing. It's like one day we went to bed longing for all of these bad things, and then one day we woke up and we didn't like them anymore. And some of us, that's honestly, that's how our taste buds work. That's actually a running gag in, in our family. My taste buds are broken. Uh, I'll be completely upfront with that. Uh, I will wake up one day and realize that I like a food that I've hated my entire life. And I don't know why. There's been no change in my head or anything. It's not like I've eaten it. I will just wake up in the morning know that I like tomatoes today for the first time in 25 years. Makes no sense. There's no reason for it. There's no rhyme for it. It's just in my head, suddenly this food that I've hated for 20 years, I will like, and suddenly I enjoy it. Confuses my poor wife terribly when she tries to cook because it's like, you don't like this. Well, I do today, and I don't know why. I might not tomorrow. Who knows? <clears throat> we unfortunately, I tend to, th- tend to think, we tend to think of spiritual transformation the same way. That we kind of expect to wake up one morning and be like, well, look, I'm not tempted to swear anymore. I I struggled with that yesterday, particularly when I stubbed my toe, but I'm I'm not going to struggle with that anymore today. Or these evil thoughts in my head. Or the impatience that I struggle with with my children or my spouse. Or how quickly I get my feelings hurt when I shouldn't. Or uh, saying hateful things to other people. We just expect to wake up one day and it just all be gone. And there is a day that will happen. It'll be the day you die. But it's interesting the way that Paul explains it, God explains it, that this this transformation process of of renouncing these ungodly desires, of of reordering our, our proper desires, is a training process. In fact, actually, it's probably more aligned with our relationship with exercise or the gym. Some of us are like, man, I couldn't run a mile if I needed to. I mean, I haven't tried running in 20 years. It's not a surprise. I wouldn't be able to do it now. 
We make no effort at any sort of physical fitness and then are not, you know, are sometimes surprised that we struggle with our health when we don't, when we don't want to work at it. It would be the similar kind of like being frustrated that I don't actually speak Swahili right now. I've never actually tried to learn it. I've not spent any time on Duolingo. I've not spent any time on Rosetta Stone. I've put no energy or effort into it. It would be like me waking up and expecting, well, I should be able to speak Swahili today. Why? Why would I expect that if I've not put any work into it, any effort into it, any, any kind of energy at learning and growing and changing? If I haven't spent any time memorizing vocabulary, learning how their grammar works, if there's different case endings for the verbs, I have no idea. I've never studied Swahili. You guys, so many of us, our relationship with our ungodly desires is similar. We, we just sit and wait for them to go away instead of actually training for it. To learn, to put the energy in to get rid of them. This is the thing that we forget, isn't it? The desires themselves are changeable. Think about how many of those things, maybe some of you had this experience, there's a food that you didn't enjoy at one point in your life and you just got stuck eating it long enough that you woke up one day and were like, man, I actually don't mind this so much. It's actually kind of good. For some of you, uh, like for me, it was black tea. I didn't like black tea, but you drink it enough times, you're like, ooh, this is really nice. Some of you, it's like really bitter flavors if you did black coffee or if you drink like a pale ale or something like that, something really bitter and biting. You don't enjoy it at first, but you learn and you grow and it's something that you can develop and cultivate. Spiritual desires are no different. Evil desires are no different. They, They can be cultivated, they can be nourished, they can be strengthened, or they can be weakened and turned away from. Friends, some of us, our ungodly desires are kind of like a kudzu patch in our heart. And we get very frustrated that the kudzu continues to grow. But if we actually stop to look at it, it's because we continue to feed and water it. It's the healthiest kudzu in the southeast. We're actively taking fertilizer and dumping it on it, turning the sprinkler on it, and getting frustrated that it continues to grow. For some of us, honestly, that's where our struggle with sin is these days. We're frustrated that sin continues to grow in our hearts, but we continue to fertilize it. We continue to feed it. and We continue to encourage it instead of training our hearts against it. Starving those desires. And, oh, next part, next point. What's the second thing we see? starving the wicked desires, nourishing the good ones. This grace of God, this transformation uh, that God does is to change us, to change us away from the evil things, but to change us into the good things. And here's the problem. Honestly, some of us, we don't think these things are very good. 
training us away from, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, and training us into living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's interesting that in the book of Titus, the dominant characteristic that is viewed as godliness is a person that is self-controlled that has governance over their faculties, that has governance over their passions, that has governance over their desires, that has governance over their bodies. A person who's not captured by their appetites, a person who's not captured by their temper, a person who's not blown about by every wind or wave of doctrine, a person that is stable, balanced, strong, self-controlled. And again, this is one of those areas I suspect that many of us kind of expect it to be like that kind of that that magic light switch that flips. Like if I could just figure out how to to flip that switch, I'd wake up one day and I'd be totally self-controlled. It would be wonderful. Or maybe we kind of secretly hope that some kind of major pharmaceutical company and their research development team is figuring out a self-control pill. It would be awesome. It'd be devastating, actually, but we want it, don't we? We want all of the easy benefits without the hard work, don't we? I mean, we want to have governance over our body without ever having to tell it no. We want governance over our emotions without ever having to tell them no. I want governance over my temper without ever actually having to control it. I just want to be able to let it all run free and still do the right thing. And friends, those are mutually exclusive things. To be trained in this present age to have self-control over our person. Just for a moment, just pause and and be honest with yourself. Is that your dream of what you want to be when you grow up? Self-controlled? Because it's interesting, that's the Bible's portrait for you. Is a person that is so filled with the Spirit of God that they have control over themselves instead of being dominated by sin and by their flesh and by their desire. It's so intriguing. I I find this so interesting that in our time and space and in our culture, a thing that we, by and large, probably would view as fairly negative is actually, interestingly, the portrait, the pinnacle of godliness in this book of the Bible. A person who is so filled with Jesus, so transformed by the Spirit, that their very person is governed by God and therefore by themselves and are under control. We talked about this. uh, Why does does Christmas matter on a daily basis? Part of it is because the grace of God is transforming and the grace of God is transforming with the goal being self-controlled, a spirit-controlled life. And friends, that matters in everything. 
That matters in how you drive. That matters in how you interact with one another after this. It, it interacts with, it impacts how you deal with people hurting your feelings, how close your feelings are to the surface, how much you snap at other people, how much you are able to control yourself, and even when you think the ugly thought, not let the ugly words come out of your mouth. A person who is self-controlled. It's interesting, another one of these short books in the end of the Bible, James presents a slightly different portrait, but the same idea of uh, the, 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 the portrait of a godly Christian, a person who's been transformed, is a person that is so governed by the Spirit that they are so self-controlled that they never speak hateful words. That their tongue is governed by Christ. What a difference that is to what our culture holds forth. A culture that says, well, I should be happy. A culture that says, I should be able to be what I want to be. I should be me. My biggest job in this place is to, to be my true self. If I should think it, I should say it. Because you know what? I, I, I shouldn't be inauthentic. For those in the room that might be a little bit older, I'm not sure you might be entirely aware of this. Amongst your two younger generations right now, I'm not sure there's an attribute that's more valued and more highly prized than authenticity. But the interesting thing is the large primary way that authenticity is defined is something to the effect of, if I think it, I say it. <laughs> that that which resonates and rattles around in my heart immediately proceeds from out of my mouth. I get to be my true self. You have two generations that have been taught the pinnacle of human existence is letting whatever desires are in their heart to come out and manifest in their flesh. That's what they've been taught. So understand Christianity for them is 100% a contradiction to what they've been taught they ought to be. They've been taught be true to themselves. The Bible teaches you control yourself. They've been taught if, I, if it's in my heart, I should say it. The Bible says only if it's good and noble and true and pure and lovely and helpful. And they've been taught that if I feel it, I should act on it. And the Bible says probably not, honestly, most of the time. <laughs> and they've been taught that I'm at my best when I'm most honest with what's happening in my heart. And the Bible teaches that I'm at my best when my heart is brought in subjection to Christ Jesus. The third thing, training us from ungodliness, training us to self-control, but equipping us to wait with hope. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is this great God and Savior is that both referring to Jesus or is it referring to Father and Son? Honestly, the grammar doesn't let us know, but what it does highlight 
is that part of the Christian existence is to be so aware of the brokenness of this life, to be so aware of the hurt and the heartache, to know the pain of loss, to know the grief of sin, to know the brokenness and the trouble the destructive nature of sin, to know an awareness of the bad of this life so aggressively that we long for the life to come. You see, again, our our nation, our culture currently is in many ways self-destructing over this. We live in a world that has bad things. We've, it's been cursed by God. He did a very good job. And has the byproducts of the fall. We did a very good job. This whole created order has been not entirely ruined, but most assuredly been broken. And our current time and space, our current culture is trying to run from all of the sad. It's trying to run from all of the bad. It's trying to get away and ignore and forget about all of the things in life that hurt. We medicate our pain away, prescription medications. We drink our pain away. We smoke our pain away. We entertain our pain away. We distract our pain away as much as we can. We avoid the difficulties of this life. I mean, I know they were made fun of aggressively by many pockets of our culture, but when the colleges began and schools began to create safe spaces where students can go and feel, you realize this is just being consistent with what their parents have taught them that you run from the things that hurt you instead of actually deal with them. Part of the great Christian experience, again, the contrast, the the freedom that we have as Christians that we, we don't have to run from the things that hurt. We actually get to deal with them. Why? Because we have the blessed hope that there'll be a day where it all goes away. There'll be a day where all the tears are gone. There'll be a day where all the sadness is gone. There'll be a day where all the death is gone. There'll be a day where all the destruction is gone. There will be a day where all of that goes away. And so I can deal with it now because I only have to deal with it for a time. Maybe 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, but it's a limited period of time. And then I get victory. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the full kind of chronological loop completed. Whereas God steps inside time and space, inside the womb of a virgin in the beginning, the first coming of Jesus. Now with this second coming, the created order is undone. It's remade. It's brought to its full and final end. And God's people are fully blessed. All that is sad is undone. We don't have to hide. We don't have to to run away. Instead, we get to hope and cry and hope and cry. Until the end.
when honestly, some of us, that's a scary prospect. Some of us have been confronted with the sadness of the world in a way that is a bit more profound than others. Some of us, the tears are a bit closer to the surface than for others. And I like how the passage ends to remind us that the appearance of this glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, that, that when Jesus shows back up again, it's because He already gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself. And I I love this phrase, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are in Christ, you belong to him. He owns you. He's not gonna lose you. He's not gonna forget about you. He's not going to forsake you, and He's not just going to cast you off into the wind to let you be blown who knows where. You are His. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And in fact, at one point in human history, He will come back to get you. He'll come back to take us to Himself. We belong to Him. Now, for some of us in the room, honestly, this is the comforting thing that you need to be reminded of, that when the tears are so incredibly close to the surface, when the grief is so profound, that you belong to God, and He hasn't forgotten you. For some of us, it's actually when we're tempted to sin, we need to be reminded, you belong to God, don't do that. Your body isn't yours anymore, it belongs to the Lord. Because the reality of the matter is we don't learn instantaneously. In fact, actually, sometimes we don't even learn very happily. I like that that's kind of presumed in verse 15. Paul tells the new preacher, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Why? Because Paul understands that some of us learn the easy way, but that's not all of us. Some of us, we have to learn the hard way. That's banging our head against the wall over and over and over and over and over and over again until our head takes the right shape because the wall ain't changing. Friends, I'm just going to lovingly make a request. Can we really work hard together to be those people that learn the easy way? That listen to what God has said? That believe that we are a people of his own possession And that our mission in this place is to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ and to live a different life. Because here's the reality. This is the fun part of the story. That's going to happen. You just get to determine how much fun you have in the process. You're going to be holy. God's going to make it happen. You're going to be perfect if you're in Christ. He's going to make that happen. You just get to shape how how hard that learning process is. Do you want to learn the easy way? Do you want to learn the hard way? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Father in heaven, 
Thank you for your word. Forgive us for learning the hard way when we do. We ask that your spirit would use the word to train us away from ungodliness and train us toward self-control. And oh God, would you give us hope. For Christ's sake, amen.